happen And the name that makes it happen No further introduction to the man that's worth cracking City's clapping for his relentless backing A vast against the former team that just went packing While they're slacking and other hosts are lacking He tells it like it is on issues that nobody's tackling While he's racking the ones who keep on grappling The listeners some followers who get it keep on stacking Great friend and the type to set a trend President to see where haters with the men there's no pretend 17 years, see along with Pierce Entertaining Southern Cali back by popular demand Intense for the listeners to resonate To the hottest topics of the day, check the resume While some local leaders seem to lack the unity My man uses his voice to do what's best for the community Westwood One, catch him on the sidelines Reporting live, what we later see in highlights No holds barred, just like on his timeline Sun filter podcast, no need to follow guidelines Meet any criteria, dropping bombs like Syria Touching down, all around, connected like Expedia Coming to your speakers live from the city, yo Bestie, welcome to the Scott Kaplan Media Great friends, thank you so much again for being here for the Scott Kaplan Solo Podcast, wherever you might be. I always find it interesting when people tell me where they're listening. In fact, last week we were on the radio and there was the big shutdown of the freeway here in San Diego. And I know a lot of people listen outside of Southern California, outside of San Diego. But imagine one of the main freeways of San Diego was completely shut down with a gas leak. And I had heard from a friend of the show, longtime friend of the show, who deals with media relations for the California Highway Patrol, Officer Jim Betancourt. And he was telling me that he was using the solo podcast to go to sleep at night. And of course, I didn't know how to take that. And so I had to go visit with Officer Betancourt and like just really get into him. Like, like am I putting you to sleep here? And uh, he was actually telling me, it was quite interesting, that you know when you're in his line of work and you see a lot of the goriness that he's seen and people jumping off the bridge and, uh, and gnarly car accidents, he's like, dude, at night, I got to find a way to chill and relax and, and you're helping me out. So I hope you're listening, Officer Betancourt, and, and appreciate you out there. So this week... Um, the solo podcast takes another interesting twist because I, I'm people ask me, well, how are you deciding who to put on? And I'm saying, well, I like to wait for something to kind of come to me. And, and I'll give you an example. So this, this week I'm traveling down to Florida. I haven't been down to South Florida, which is where my parents live in a really long time. It's where I went to high school. The Stoneman Douglas shooting happened right across the street meaning meaning where i lived was one town coral springs on one side on the on the south side and parkland was on the other side of the street on the north side and, and it, they're they're the same town for all intent and purposes if you understand what i'm saying and and very emotional to be from there to know families whose kids were there etc um, to know that i know my first job out of college i was a substitute teacher back down there and i was at that school all the time there's just an emotional connection when something like this happens in your town. And so I'm traveling down there next week and I'm going to be interviewing one of the parents who's probably one of the best known or most famous all of a sudden parents, a guy by the name of Andrew Pollock, whose daughter Meadow was killed as a senior. And he's the guy that you see with Trump standing there in the White House saying, I'm pissed. I'm pissed. My three sons, you know, they have to see this, they have to bury their sister. I'm going to go visit with him at his home and and talk to him about what's gone on in his life since and, and, and what he's doing with his life now. And so the question is, how do you decide who you're going to put on? And like I said, I, I'm kind of letting things come to me like this week. This is an interesting guest for the solo podcast this week. Those of you that are in the endurance sports world, people that love marathons and triathlons and long distance cycling and ultra endurance challenges, 
And there's a whole community of people like that, certainly that I'm connected to here in Southern California. But if you know this, this world, you know the name Scott Tinley. Now, for those of you that have no idea who Scott Tinley is, you know, to me, he's a neighbor and a friend, and, um, and I know him more, I would say, sh- socially than I do his, um, his brilliant, spectacular, professional triathlon career. you got to understand, in the early days of Ironman triathlon, and those of you who don't know what Ironman is, it's a 2.6-mile swim, 112-mile bike ride, followed by a 26.2-mile run, a full marathon. And the holy grail of Ironman is Kona, Hawaii. That's the, uh, the masters, if you will, of golf is the Augusta National. You know, everybody would like to play golf there. This is where everybody would like to finish an Ironman, would be Kona, Hawaii, the World Championship. I knew Scott Tinley when I was getting into Ironman, and I knew the reputation because people said, hey, Scott Tinley was a two-time world champion. He's a superstar. But because that happened when I was 12 and 15 years old, and I was living in Florida, and triathlon wasn't really on my radar, and... I just didn't know a whole lot about Scott Tinley's incredible triathlon career. Again, I got to know Scott because his wife, Virginia, is the CEO at the Challenge Athletes Foundation. And one of the founders of the Challenge Athletes Foundation, Jeffrey Eskow, is one of my closest friends. And Bob Babbitt, the other founder of the Challenge Athletes Foundation, is one of my close friends and colleagues. And so I'm connected to the endurance sports world through the Challenge Athletes Foundation. And, and through the Challenge Athletes Foundation and the endurance sports world came this relationship with Scott Tinley. So Scott Tinley texted me last week and he said, hey, I'd, I'd really like to promote something I've got coming up at San Diego State. And Scott has spent his post-professional sports career studying, from what I can gather, the way I interpret it is transition in life, kind of a what now syndrome. These are my words. You know, an athlete plays in the NFL for 15 years and gets done, and it's like, what now? Or someone comes back from a war, and um, and what now with my life? Or, as Scott will tell you later, what happens when a guy is a young guy and become, you know, hits it big in business and makes all this money? What now? And, and that seems to be an area that Scott has studied for many years. So this conversation goes in a lot of different directions, from the history of Iron Man and his incredible championship caliber career to Robin Williams, who again was very connected to the challenge athletes foundation, who Scott Tinley knew well, um, trained with, um, and, and there's an uncomfortable nature to when this conversation turns to Robin Williams and, and Scott, I could tell didn't really want to go too deep into his relationship with Robin and, and what happened to Robin Williams. And then we, we really do later on get into what Scott does now, uh, what he studies, what he professes, what he teaches, and, uh, and and you know who he's really trying to connect with and help. So it's a it's a really interesting conversation, and I'm so glad that Scott Tinley got in touch with me last week because um, sometimes you know you just need that little poke to get somebody back into your consciousness to receive something from them and possibly even to give them something. And I know I'm getting a little overly cosmic, but Scott Tinley is just a guy who I really admire so much and, uh, and was really glad to have him at my house. So Tin Man, you're in my house and, and this was my goal. By the way, just so you know, as we get started, dog is over here, 11-year-old daughter's over here, 14-year-old just walked in. 
Uh, 17-year-old son is just walking in. You guys are both going out tonight? You have your fake ID? Okay. This dog is over here barking. Justin, come say hello to Scott Tinley. Come say hello. Be a a respectful person. How are you? This guy, this is my son Justin right Stand here. Stand by. Justin, come say hello. Good to see you. Yeah, you hear Good, the, how are you? You hear the same thing <laughs> all the time. Like, oh, I, I remember when you were that big. <laughs> yeah, he was little. You want the keys to my car? Actually, it's a, it's a scooter out there. Okay. Yeah, it's a moped. You, you can have use a mo- it. Did you ride a moped over here? <laughs> yeah. A moped? Yeah, I don't live that far from you. So. No, I realize that. Yeah, we're, we, we're both in Barrio Del Mario. <laughs> it sucks to be here, right? <laughs> Justin, take him out of here. Hey, Jack. Scott and I are, are talking here. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Justin. Good seeing you. Right. <laughs> so, dude, my my dream, my goal when I started this podcast, this is episode 11, by the way. I wanted people to come to my house, sit yeah. on the couch, chill. In the case of tonight, this is the first time where there's chaos going on around right. us. Right. So this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to be yeah. very, very natural. Hey, you, you any beers in the fridge, Justin? No, never mind. No. Okay. Yeah, there's no I, alcohol I, in this house. Exactly. <laughs> okay, never mind. Okay, yeah. Go so, ahead. So, Scott. I want to start off with this. You sit down right there. You can listen to this. You no 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 edits. There is no editing. There is no editing. So your 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 life after triathlon, mm-hmm. you you've always from what I know of you, you've always been like way past, way beyond your own professional athletic career. That you think that's fair? I don't know what way past means. I but, mean, but, like but, you've but, never really been like, oh, hey, I'm Scott Tinley and I'm a two-time Ironman world champion and, and that's who I am in life and I keep going back every year so everybody can celebrate me and tell me how great I am. And I mean, it just seemed like you were the kind of guy that when your athletic career, when you decided it was over, you moved on to other stuff. Uh, I think that's a fair comment. Um, it's not that I don't appreciate the, all the opportunities that being a professional athlete gave me, you know, or the 15 or 16 years that, that I w- was in that occupation. Um, but, but yeah, I think your assumptions are, are mostly correct. When I left professional sports and I thought, okay, well, you know, what, what else do I want to do with my life, my life, both professionally, personally, you know, in, with my friendships, my marriage, etc., um, it wasn't centered around my identity as an, a retired professional athlete. So you know, here I am, fifteen years later, or more, like doing different things. And and I don't, I mean, I, I've been a professor longer than I was a professional athlete. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People don't come up with come up here on the streets and go, yo, dude, I took your class back in 2002. Right. You know, I got a B plus. Really thought I just got an A minus. You know, I, I'm still connected to what I did in professional sports, you know, many decades before that. How did you, just because I, I say this to almost all my guests on this podcast, this will not be your only appearance. So I'd like to start at the beginning if I could. <laughs> there are a lot of people who listen to my radio show and who will listen to this podcast and they'll hear the name Scott Tinley and they'll go, oh my God, Scott Tinley. I was a huge fan of Scott Tinley's when he was a Ironman champion or I wore his gear when, when he had you know his own clothing line. People in the world of endurance sports and triathlon still know your name and your brand. But for people that don't know it and don't know endurance sports, I just want to go back to the beginning of how did you ever even get into Ironman? Because your championship, your first championship was 82 or 83? 82. 82. Mm-hmm. And, and that year was the year, that was the Julie Moss crawl to the finish line. Correct. And, right. and so your victory... To some degree, people say historically was somewhat overshadowed by the drama of the women's finish. So what? Right. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, well, whatever built the popularity of the sport 
and by extension, the interest in, in endurance sports uh, and people challenging themselves and all those kind of cliches that are associated not only with Ironman, but Julie Moss and, and the, the, the growth of these sort of uh, participatory sports that create these challenges for people. Uh, you know, I don't see that connected to me personally in 82. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm happy to have been a part of that. Well, how did you, you know, get, how, because what, what was a, what was a, do me a little bit of favor here and just give me a little history. In fact, well, just because I knew you were coming on, I, I literally went to my bookshelf and pulled out this book, 25 Years of the Ironman World Championship by our friend Bob Babbitt, who wrote this book. And I, I wanted to go back and look at the Ironmans that you won and what the stories of those Ironmans were. But how did you even get into doing this sport back then? Well, quite by accident. Uh, you know, I, I came down to San Diego from, from Orange County, where I grew up. To go to San Diego State in 1976. Of course, haven't left. I've been in San Diego State for, <laughs> for what, 50 years now. Um, but at that time, the, you know, the triathlon was, was in its very early stages. Um, and there was a group of people who wanted to participate in sports other than running. And I just happened to be part of that group. Um, you know, I, I didn't own a car. I, was, I had been swimming as a lifeguard. I had a little bit of background as a as a high school runner. And so looking at the first couple of triathlons that were offered in 74, 75, I thought, oh, that, that, that looks pretty cool. So my first one in 1976, I thought, oh, wow, okay, this is amazing. You know, um, did better than I thought I would. Um, and How then, old were you at that point? Uh, I was 20 years old. And, and, I thought, and this okay. is here in San Diego. There's a Yeah, a Mission Bay. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, so... and. <laughs> Having a great experience in 1976, I thought, okay, well, okay, well there's got to be another one next weekend or the weekend after that. And, and people said, no, nah, we only do one a year. So you're going to have to wait 12 months. <laughs> so, you know, my next one was 1977, had a good experience. And then, you know, met Tommy Warren, who won the Ironman in 1979. And it kind of expanded to the point where I thought, all right, well, you know, I've got to get on with my life, finish up my college degree, et cetera. Um, but there's this unfinished business of having competing in multi-sport events, which you know had they're intriguing, they're exciting, they were different, unique, and I was like, all right, wherever that goes, I think I'm going to follow it. And by 1982, I mean, you started in '76, you said, 20 years old. By 82, you were already, I, look, it's not like it is today where there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people around the world that are competing in triathlon and in this case even Ironmans I mean that distance back then it's not like there were huge numbers but how did you get to the the point where you were already a world champion competitor well this idea of world championship in 1982 it it didn't really mean anything right yeah you know I mean just to show up in Hawaii and to compete against 317 other people in my first race in 1981 where I got third you know riding a 28-pound bike that cost me 112 bucks, you, you know, wearing flip-flops on the bike, vice grips on my toolkit, you know, very sophomoric effort at this whole thing. It, 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 in no way could you, could you consider it a, a championship of any sorts. Um, at, at the time, it was, it was a, basically a handful of people experimenting. And so, I, you know, I felt blessed to actually be a part of that. And then, uh, of course, you know, finishing third in my first event, I think oh, I'll go back one more time, see how I could do with with a better bike, better training, 
you know, spandex instead of f- flappy, you know, cut off jeans on the bike. Um, yeah, and the next year, so I won. Like, okay, whoopee. Oh, knock yourself out. You know, trophy about six inches high. And uh, back to work. Any money? Yeah. No, not a cent. No, no money to win the Ironman back then? No. Was that the year, was 82 the year that you were like 30 or so seconds behind and, and closed right in town, right in, on a lead drive? No, that was 1983. Okay. Dave Scott. So that was the year after that. Right, so 82 I won, and then actually in 1982 there was two races in Hawaii. Um, there was one in February, and then they moved it to the fall to kind of uh, uh, compensate for pressure from the, Euro- the European contingency what they want to tra- oh, wanted to train um, during the summertime. So, you know, m- my championship lasted, you know, like eight months. <laughs> <laughs> and there was all, you know, about Julie Moss and Kathleen McCartney, as it should have been. So, whoopee, knock yourself out. Um, and then Dave Scott came back with a vengeance, right? Dave Scott, the, you know, one of my contemporaries, a fantastic athlete, won the Ironman six times. Uh, so he won in the fall of 82. And then we had this big rematch in 83. And, you know, neck and neck kind of thing. You know, pre-Iron War, 1989, with, um, between Mark Allen and, and Dave Scott. But, yeah, so I finished 33 seconds behind. And, 33 seconds behind him. Yeah, yeah. Oops. <laughs> did he catch you? Did you? Were, were no, you trying no, to he, catch him? Uh, he he was failing the whole time. He was failing the whole time, um, and and I, I didn't know how far he was ahead. And I kind of, you know, there was there was no information. You know, there was no uh, statistics. You know, you couldn't really have people out there telling you how far that you were behind. And uh, my wife um, Virginia was telling me, "Oh, Dave, Dave doesn't look that good. You might want to pick it up." You know. Anyways, that was kind of like, "All right, whatever. I'm just gonna do my own thing." And came around the corner thinking I was five minutes behind, and saw him at the finish line, and he he basically collapsed. They put him on a stretcher, put a bunch of IVs in his arm, and I was feeling really good. And I'm just kind of standing there going, "Like, dude, let's go, man. Come on, rematch <laughs> right now, right now. Pull those needles out. Let's go." So you you won though in '82. I, I want to get my chronology right. Did I, do I? You, you won in '82. Mm-hmm. You say you came in second the next year, '83. Correct. The race we're talking about, and then won again in '85. Correct. And yeah. what happened in that race? What was the story of that uh, race? That, that was the ultimate cherry pick in the whole sport. Uh, yeah, you know, there was this sort of battle between uh, a European race in Nice, France, uh, put on by IMG, and an Ironman. As far as you know, which which one would be the de facto world championship? Um, neither of them had been offering prize money per se. Um, nice was in, incentivizing professional athletes to go there. Um, and they had given a little bit of appearance money to a few athletes. I mean, not much. You know, I mean, you're talking hundreds, not thousands, not many thousands of dollars. Um, and Iron Man had resisted offering any prize money. So in 1985, uh, most of the professional athletes, including myself and Mark Allen and Scott Molina and Dave Scott, and Mike Pig, you know, the kind of top five at, at the time, um, had competed in Nice, and then that was it. And um, two weeks later, the Ironman was offered, and I thought, shit, you know what? I mean, I'm in pretty good shape. I'm, uh, I think I can recover from, from, from a long-distance race and go do Ironman again. Unfortunately, Mark Allen, Dave Scott, Scott Molina, Mike Pig um, didn't show up. So I showed up and I won it. Uh, so, and, all and, all and, your top rivals didn't show up. No, they didn't show up. But but I set a world record, so it kind of justified my ability to you know to sack up after two weeks of. Well, the race two weeks earlier in Nice was that a full Ironman? Uh, nearly. Really? Yeah, two mile swim, hundred mile bike, twenty six mile run. 
Damn. Yeah. So let me ask you a question about so. Iron Man. Just I, I know I want to move on to a lot of other stuff, but like for me, I did Iron Man eight years ago. And I say this all the time to people. Um, it was the only one I've ever done, and it's probably the only one I'll ever do, unless I get motivated at some point to get back into it. Um, but I literally use my Iron Man experience every day of my life. I bullshit you not. Every day there's something that happens in my daily life where I have to be back thinking I'm at like mile 13 of the run, seeing the sun set to my left. You don't know about the sun setting on the run. I know about it. <laughs> and, and, and knowing that I just had to put one foot in front of the other, knowing that looking at my watch saying, when am I going to get to the finish? It doesn't matter. I'm going to get to the finish. I literally use that every day. I know it sounds corny, but if you've, if you've done an Ironman, you might know what I'm talking about. My question to you is though, is it very different for you? Because for you, it was a sport. It was a job. It was a, a profession. For me, it was it was a dream, a goal, and I completed it. Check. No, I, I disagree. Um, the fact that I did that particular race in Kona 20 times over um, the, the arc of, of my life, which changed radically between the time I was 20 years old and the time I was 40 years old, uh, you know, my, my memories about how it unfolded, and what it meant to me then and now um, are different year by year. So I can totally relate to your idea that, that it informs you and it engages you and it gives you, um, you know, fond memories and inspiration. Um, but I could also think about particular years when, shit, if I, you know, if I get third, I can't make the house payment. You know, if I get fourth, you know, I'm, I'm living in my, in my van again. So, so every year had a, had a different feeling. Um, and, and, and that sort of signifies how not only that event, but, but sports generally in society have evolved over the past several decades. You know, when we think about Ironman in, you know, in 1976 or 1978, it's much different than it is now, you know, in 2018, where the winner, you know, I mean, you can make, you can make a quarter million bucks, you know, and, and my trophies were six inches in 1982 and, and, Back in 80, and then in 85, they went to 12 inches. <laughs> so I doubled my salary. <laughs> All right. You know, for me, um, again, when I think back, my son, you know, you said hello, and, and he's sitting here. I'll never forget this. I mean, this is, this is for me, this is everything. I mean, this is the moment of my life. Seriously, I'm not bullshitting you. Um, I, I had gotten, by the way, I want to say that, that the day that I did Ironman, 2010, one of my fondest memories was you being at the swim start on a stand-up paddleboard and you're kind of in front of the whole group and I, I'm in the water and I'm like freaking out, okay? It's my first Ironman yeah. and I'm at the Hawaii World Championships and I bullshitted my way into even getting in because I didn't qualify and I, there was no chance of qualifying. By the way, if it wasn't for the 1982 Ironman yeah. that you did, that you won, right. you can go find this on YouTube right now. Everybody sees that Julie Moss, yeah. uh, McCartney thing and, and that's Jim Lampley's voice on there. Right. It was right. very much Jim Lampley who in the early days got ABC Sports to, to right. let him cover it. Yeah. It was Jim Lampley who got me into the Ironman in 2010 right. using connections. That's how I got in. Yeah. But when I, when I got off the bike, I, I, my goal was to be off the bike before the men finished. And when I pulled into town, I had a really bad day. When I pulled into town, I could see all the cameras following and the helicopters following. And I said, hey, who's leading? Yeah. And they said, I don't know. That's the women. So the guys were already well done. 
by the time they're I back got at their hotel, had a massage, big time, a couple of beers, they're asleep right yeah, now, and you're, right. Just, you're just you're just thinking about the run, <laughs> right? Like I've never done a marathon before. Yeah. I'm about to go run 26 miles, so I get off my bike, I go in, I change. At this point, I'm like, you might as well just take your time. Um, I come out, and as I'm about, I'm probably at about mile six or so of the run, and I start heading up the hill as I'm going to go out to the Queen K Highway, right? And my son at the time is nine years old, and and he looks at me. And I can see him still. He's got goofy sunglasses on, and he's got on uh, he's got on some flip flops. And I I look at him, and I said, and he goes, "You can do it, Dad." Like he's, he's like, "You could do it, Dad." As yeah. I'm going up the hill, and I look back at him, and I went, "I'm gonna do it," yeah. you know. And this guy started crying, like like right there on the spot. He's like, "That's what it's all about, man. That's what it's all about, right there, man." And like that's one of my greatest moments, you know. So you you were starring your own sports movie right there. Oh, big and time! Just like you know, Jerry Maguire and Rocky. It was all like this connected right there. Big time. Fantastic. I mean, it's 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 interesting though because um, you like I said you you have done so much now after triathlon and after being a world champion. No, you're making a face like you haven't. First of all, you have a PhD. How long did that take? Uh, a long time. I would think so. Yeah, that was five years. Should I call you doctor? No, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. I, I, as I was starting to think about this conversation, because you and I have been wanting to do this for a while, I just started looking around. I just started pulling some stuff up online. I wanted to talk about something that I, I found in an article that you'd written about Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. Talk about that? Um, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Robin? Our, our passion for the Challenge Athletes Foundation. Your wife's been the longtime CEO. Right. One of my best friends. One of, I know, one of your right. longtime closest friends, Jeffrey Esterkow, uh, you know, was, was the founder. Justin, get the dog out of here. The dog's already bitten Scott. Look, look at Scott's finger. Look at Scott's finger uh, where Jack bit him. <laughs> Bye, Jack. So I didn't realize it. Did, had you become close friends with Robin? Robin Williams, because he was pretty active with the Challenge Athletes. He was, yeah, yeah. Robin was a huge contribution to um, the foundation in in gaining local publicity. You know, in some of the early years, um, the foundation was um, you know looking to make a a name and a brand for itself um, to try and bring awareness to the physically challenged population. And you know, of course, as you know better than me, it's um, having connections to to to, to fame. Uh, b- brings media coverage, which brings sponsors, which brings more media coverage, which brings more sponsors, which equivocates to money to people who need it, right? So, so the, the driver was fame, and and Robin realizing that um, was was very um, magnanimous with his time and his efforts, and and he um, he, he made a huge difference to the foundation. And to what it um, what it represents and, and what it's been able to accomplish in the years since his passing. Yeah, so. and so Robin would come down here to San Diego and he'd be part of the CAF triathlon, and yeah. he must have had he mu- he loved the sport. He did. Okay, so how long? How did you guys become close? Was he a, was he a fan of of yours as a uh, world champion triathlete or? I knew Julia, I, put the dog in the other room. Will you please, sweetie? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, this is what I love about this podcast. There's no editing. There's no editing. This is real life, Jack. <laughs> Bye, Jack. Um, I, I got to meet Robin through his personal trainer, who was a good friend of mine, and he had always encouraged me to, um, uh, you know, to let him know if I was ever going to be in San Francisco, um, and you know, just to you know, connect with him. 
um, because he, you know, this, this, my, my, my friend, the, the, the trainer spent a fair amount of time with Robin in his home in San Francisco. And I happened to be up there, uh, in preparation for the Alcatraz triathlon. And, you know, and I call up my, you know, my friend, Greg O'Brien. I go, Greg, look, I'm in town, you, you know, are you hanging out with Robin at all? Just because I'm here and maybe I'll come by and said, hi. he goes, he goes, 10 minutes, meet us at the corner of such and such on a bike. And Robin and I went for a ride with Greg and you know and that was kind of the start of it. What year do you think that was? Uh that would have been 89. Mm-hmm. And and so did you become like really really close with Robin thereafter? I, when I say really really close, I don't mean like your best friends, but I mean it seemed like you guys had a, a tight relationship from well, what I've read now. I, the, you know the deal with with people who are ultra famous as in in Robin's case um they sometimes are suspect of of those who are close to them um and and myself and and other professional athletes or, or other cyclists generally or, or triathletes you know we would treat robin as a fellow athlete not as a superstar not as a comedian not as a you know an icon in the world of professional humor and, and i think he appreciated that so we were like okay robin you know you kind of suck on that last hill so can you just you know keep it up a little bit <laughs> And so I, I think that was one of the attractions um, for for him, perhaps to, to be um, you know, closer to the San Diego community of athletes, because he he just became, over time, right, a member of the tribe. And you know there was no differentiation. Oh, you're Robin Williams, and you're this, you're that. So, would you guys hang out when you weren't on the bike, when you weren't out training? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that his was, reputation was that he loved to party, and you know, obviously there was a lot of rehab and alcohol I, issues and I, so on. Did you, did you guys? I mean, was it like a party like that? No, no. I mean, I, I wasn't, I wasn't a part of that, and I can't really speak to that. I mean, our, our relationship was uh, was about athleticism and the foundation, and just you know, friendship over riding bikes. I, the reason I'm bringing it up, and I, I'm going somewhere with all this, is um, it's hard to believe when somebody that famous you know, kills himself because we all look at them and go, man, come on, this guy's a celebrity. He's a star. He's rich. Everywhere he goes, he's celebrated and adored. I mean, I can remember Robin Williams walking into the lobby of the hotel that we would stage at in San Francisco when we would go from San Francisco to San Diego for the million dollar challenge. And he comes walking in the room and there's 200 people there, if that, and they give him the microphone And, you know, Robin Williams comedy was all extemporaneous, you know, I mean, at least that's the way he made it look to the audience. And he would just come in, grab the mic. And in 10 minutes, he had everybody just just right where he wanted them, you know, and it was so hard for me to understand how a guy like that could do this. But I don't I don't I'm I'm learning more now, unfortunately, about mental health problems mm-hmm. I've, I've read some of your tweets recently about um you know gun control and mental health i know you got a lot of opinions on that it's just hard to believe that that someone like robin williams and, and i read your article about it where you said that you would talk to him and uh, i think you guys you told the story that you and robin were out on a bike ride and uh, you must have been at a red light and a woman pulled up to the red light and flashed him her tits does this sound right um no, she was, she was in this a... This is my, my read of your work, by the way. <laughs> no, she was in a... Um, she was in a kit car. You know, if you know what a kit car is, it's kind of a, you know, a, 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 a fake um, 
collectible car. Mm-hmm. And you know, she was sort of you know doing her eyelashes or something. And and I don't know. I, I said something like, "Wow, you know, you look cute." You know, too bad it's fiberglass or something like that. <laughs> it was a little bit condescending, but you know, you know, as a a collectible or as a collector of of old car myself, it was like you know, it was, it was kind of in fun. You look down at a kit car, and <laughs> Robin thought it was really funny, and it was the first joke that I ever cracked that completely busted him up. The light <laughs> turned green; he couldn't even ride. He was going like, "Oh, oh my God, that's a hilarious joke! I'm gonna have to use that." So, all right, you can use that. <laughs> but but you said something to the effect of that that everywhere he goes, he was always under everybody knew him everywhere he went. That was the point of of yeah. what I had read from from the article that you yeah. had written about that moment. Well, I mean that's the vagaries of fame. You know, I mean there's there's a lot of people who who would love to have the fame and the fortune and the riches and the excess and and the opportunities um, of that that come with with recognition and finances but be careful what you wish for you know I mean, it's, there's some um, you don't want to be in that prison of fame where everywhere you go people are expecting something from you and you have you have no anonymity and you have no privacy um, is that what is that what contributed to Robin Williams know. depression or mental health I have no idea problems did he did he hate it did you ever talk I can't about that? Com- no, I can't comment on that. I mean, I mean, <laughs> would you hate it? You know, if everywhere you went, somebody was looking at you and hoping to get something from you. I have no idea if if that was Robin's, um, you know, own challenge. But any one of us, you know, we all want our our place and our privacy and our and our, our personal world. And and if we can't escape the constant pressure, I mean, what's that worth? Where I was going with all of this with Robin Williams, and I can tell it's probably not your favorite topic to talk about. Um, I you I always perceive you now as being a guy who does a lot of work with with athletes in their post professional lives, and I'm around a lot of these football players, you know, and and every one of these guys I shouldn't say everyone that's that's too strong. So many of these guys have such huge problems when their careers are over, you know, whether it's you hear it all the time, you know, they're, they were so accustomed to being coached and told what to do and where to be at whatever time. And very much like somebody who gets out of the military, who's just completely lost and has no idea what to do. Don't, doesn't know how to dress for a job interview. Doesn't know how to, you know, apply for a job, et cetera. Um, you know, I just wondered if, if life for Robin was similar in any way to life for athletes when their careers come to an end, and and they just have such a hard time dealing with with realities. Again, you know, I, I can't speak for, for for Robin's case personally, but 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 I think the 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 point that you're moving towards is well taken. Um, you know, when you when you live an existence that's um, under scrutiny, under the spotlight, highly compensated, exciting, vibrant. Whether you're a professional comedian, professional athlete, or whether you're a veteran who has lived a life in theaters of war where there's this heightened sense of existence because there are bullets whizzing by you. When that excitement and that focus and that hyperbole goes away and you think, oh, great, I can just relax now, right? You miss that. And and, and this explains in some way why so many... 
um, veterans from the Vietnam War, when they cycled back from their their service after 13 months in the theaters of war in Southeast Asia, actually re-upped personally because they're like, okay, well, my life is not as dangerous, but it's not very exciting. And, and people aren't accepting what I contributed, so at least I can go back over there and, and, you know, and I have my brethren. I have my, my circle of influence. I have the excitement of, 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 of being connected to something vibrant and engaging. And even though it's dangerous, if not fatal, that's better than sitting on a couch, you know, at your at your mom's house in Hastings, Nebraska, with a bottle of Jack Daniels, watching reruns of you know Leave It to Beaver. It's quite so, a picture you just painted, by the way. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I, it's a little depressing, and not to, but but you know, the the point is that that um, a certain number of professional athletes, and certainly not all, um, are undertrained. Uh, and underexposed to realities of existence in life because they live insular lives from a very young age. And when they can no longer provide us with, with thrill and excitement and inspiration, you know, we as fans, we, we dispose of them, you know, like a widget, you know, it doesn't work for us anymore. Thanks very much for all the, you know, for the great, great inspiration who's next I feel that way I mean that's so, why I, I would spew on the radio all the time hey I don't care if these baseball players are on steroids good hit the ball further hit it out of the ballpark I don't care and I don't mean to sound so cold and callous it's just that you just made the point that as a fan base we use athletes as like you just said widgets when we're done with them we dispose of them next crop comes in right but but I suppose these guys and this is I think this is really where your concentration is, isn't it? Well, it, it, for me personally, uh, it was a focus when I transitioned out of my 17 career, 17 year career as a professional athlete. I thought that my life um, would be uh, fairly easy, you know, when I left. Um, it Why did wasn't. You think that? Why did you assume that? Uh, because everything seemed to be working in that in that regard you know i had a good family great wife uh you know i wasn't stupid college degree you know unfinished masters um did you have any money from triathlon as you not that much sport? but uh, you know i, I had had enough to kind of tr you know where at least for a couple of years I, I could probably do something else until i found my way um you know and and People around me said, "Oh, you'll be fine. You know, you can you can start up another company. You, you can be a sportscaster. You can you can be a manufacturer's rep. There's a lot of great opportunities. None of which appealed to me because it was all sort of the same stuff. So so my challenge um, when I felt you know depressed that I wasn't engaged in something was to understand, you know, this whole position of of the transitioning athlete, um, and that ended up with you know with, with a master's thesis and you know, 10 years in graduate school and finally, a, you know, PhD dissertation on the subject and a couple of books, all of which were, were part of my, I don't want to say healing process, but my transitional process to understand something that I didn't understand. And so uh, out of that, I feel a certain responsibility to extend what I've learned to a lot of other athletes, you know, whether they're 14, 15 years old or 45 or 50 who, who think, wow, okay, I made a bunch of money, people love me, you know, I was in the news, but why do I feel like I'm a piece of shit? 
you know. <laughs> and, and I never, I know, I, I, I love <laughs> to use this example because it, it, it really hit home for me in a huge way. Uh, years ago, I was watching a show on like a Saturday afternoon on Fox Sports, whatever. I mean, it was it was some random channel. It wasn't like the main network channel. And I saw an interview with Deion Sanders, who's, you know, a Hall of Fame cornerback in the NFL. And he said that his whole life he was chasing a Super Bowl championship. And he assumed that the day he won a Super Bowl, everything would be perfect. And he said he, he won a Super Bowl. And within like 30 days, he tried to kill himself because he just he thought that everything was going to be perfect when yeah. he finally reached the Super Bowl and won the Super Bowl. Right. And then when he did, he realized nothing's really different other than I won a football game. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Very powerful because, you know, locally here, you know, I mean, I don't have to tell you the junior say situation a few years ago. And, you know, we, we knew junior, I say we, I mean, I, I knew junior for years and not like we were best friends hardly, but you're hearing about these stories all the time. Yeah. Well, one of the first conversations that I had with a, a former retired professional athlete when I was in my own transition was with, with um, a local kind of, you know, underground legend in, in that area named Jerry Shirk. Jerry Shirk pl- um, played with a Cle- on the Cleveland Browns with Brian Sipe, mm-hmm. uh, all-pro linebacker, you know, late 70s. And somebody said, you got to talk with Jerry, right? You know, he's got a master's in, in counseling. He's, he really understands sport transition. I'm like, yeah, whatever. He's a football player. What, do you know, what does he know about triathletes? So I met Jerry at Starbucks, Del Mar. First thing he said to me, he goes, you know, Scott, the sooner you realize the best part of your life is over, the sooner you can get on with having a pretty good second half. <laughs> and at first I thought, oh, man, that's, who's this guy? But, you know, in retrospect, it was probably the, the, the smartest thing anybody said to me in decades. You know, and, and Jerry and I have gone to be really good friends, but, but you know, this idea that we, we are, we as, as professional athletes are placed in this heightened sense of existence, no different than people in theaters of war, you know, um, or, or, or the 29-year-old who, who builds up this incredible company and sells it for $100 million and then realizes that he's accomplished or she's accomplished their life purpose and then they don't know where they're going to go from there. Right? So life transition, you know, it's um, what, what we are learning from studying the unexpected vagaries of, of challenge leaving sport are are expanding into other areas and, and that's really what what i think is important you know for from a research standpoint i'm curious you and i were talking about this this is uh you got something coming up up at san diego state you said you've been a professor up at san diego state for a long time right seems how, like it how long has it been <laughs> uh well i did a couple of masters there when i got out of sport in the late 90s and started teaching there in 2003 and been there off and on since then so it's been a fantastic experience great great people great you know great opportunities is that a full-time profession what you do at san diego state because i have this vision of you you'll have to excuse me of like being alone by yourself in some cabin somewhere (laughs) for like a month at a time maybe on like a month-long fast and like you're just sitting there thinking and you know taking in nature this is like my perception and it's only probably because some at some point you must have told me that you were like leaving for a week and going to santa barbara and you were going to be working on some writing and so i have this mountain man perception of you disappearing for a month 
like I said, on some crazy fast. And well, yeah, I mean, there's there's some truth to that. Oh, really? But, okay. You know, but but you know, I've been in a lecture at San Diego State. Uh, you know, teaching two to three classes every semester for, geez, twelve years now. It's a full time gig, and, and um, it's 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 one of the best jobs I've ever had. And you know, and I've had some good jobs. You know, um, including being a professional athlete, being a firefighter, paramedic, teaching sailing, being a lifeguard. But but as a teacher at a university, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic thing. And, and, of course, the three best reasons to be a teacher, we all know this, right? June, July, and August. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about what's going on then, because there's going to be a lot of people tuning in, and um, there's still plenty of time. Sometimes these these podcasts can just live forever and they're not dated. But in this particular case, you've got an event coming up at San Diego State, which is Wednesday, March 21st. What is that all about? So, so what, what we've done in this this um, this particular thing is is we, we created this this series of colloquium talks. Sports and American Society is our title and. We work with, with former President Hirschman, who, who kind of challenged me on a, on a personal basis one time to come up with a way to, to connect sports with the rest of the campus, right? You know, there's there's what we do in exercise and nutritional sciences. There's what happens over in athletics. And then there's the rest of the university, which sometimes feels disconnected to the world of sports, athleticism, health, et cetera. So he said, look, you know, come up with something that, that offers the, the chance to, to have a whole bunch of people across campus. And, and include, the, you know, the local community to actually talk about sports in, in a more broader perspective. So the result was, and, you know, and it gave us money to put this whole thing together, um, was the Sports and American Society series. And, you know, and we've had seven or eight different versions of, of this one. We've talked about gender in sport. We've talked about um, the place of, of surfing and skating as a game changer in the world of, of, of alternative sports. But what we have coming up on the 21st is a focus on life transition after sport for athletes. And we've got fantastic speakers. We've got um, Simon Marshall, who a former professor at San Diego State, uh, who's moving on to, to, to personal coaching and, and other involvements in advising. Um, Polly Newby-Fraser, eight-time Ironman champion. Nico Marcolongo. You know who's who's with CAF, and he's he's a veteran, um, a semi-professional basketball player in Europe. So, anyways, it's um, it, it's our chance to bring together a, a bunch of really smart people who have thought about this subject, and of course, a couple of surprise guests who you know shall, shall remain unnamed, local <laughs> prof, you know retired professional athletes who who know who they are, and I'm calling them out right now. So we'll we'll expect to see you guys there. So this is from six to eight p.m. Um, can anybody go to this, or do you have to be a student? No, nope. it's open. Student, faculty, staff, alumni, their friends. It, you know, it's free. Um, parking available at you know parking structure five. Um, get a small fee. Um, beverage, coffee, dessert service. Six o'clock. Show up. You know, each of the talks um, going to be like ten to twelve minutes for three or four people, and then we'll have a panel of experts. And open the whole thing up to questions. Who's so, the, so, who's the target audience on something like this? Is it former athletes who are trying to figure out how to transition into mainstream life, or is it coaches? Is it parents? I'm just curious who's who's the audience on something like this. I think it's all of that. Uh, I mean, I mean, certainly somebody who's involved in sports now 
regardless of their level, you know, whether it's high school, college, professional, semi-professional, Olympics, um, who are looking to move into different avenues, or whether it's coaches um, or therapists, physical therapists or um, athletic trainers who are interested in advising their athletes on where to go next. Uh, I think anybody in that area can, you know, can uh, gain something from from this talk. Yeah, that's cool. Scott, um, one more time, I want to tell everybody, and, and maybe is, is there a website or can they use scotttinley.com? Is there any information on your website or are you guys tweeting stuff? How would you like people to, to learn more about this? They can go to scotttinley.com. I'll have something up on that. Um, they can uh, you know, contact the Exercise Nutritional Sciences Department at San Diego State University. Um, we have a Facebook page. And, and just just Google Life After Sports at San Diego State and they'll find something. Life After Sports at San Diego State. Just Google that and you'll find it. I think this is really interesting. Yeah. I think it's really Thanks. interesting work. I, I want to just get back to, to triathlon for a minute now. So, so you brought a gift for me tonight and I really appreciate that. Finding Triathlon is the name of the book, How Endurance Sports Explain the World, and you just brought it to me, and I can't wait to read this book. How many books have you published? Mm, that's got to be six or seven. Number six or seven. I don't know what that. You, uh, do you do this on, when you publish a book, is it such now that you have enough published that you, and, and two Ironman World Championships that you have, is it easy to publish a book, or do you have to do it by no. yourself, or does no. it cost a lot of money? How, how does that work? Um, each of my books have been published by by different publishers. Excuse me. Um, this one's from Hatherley Press, which is a kind of, um, you know, small sports-centric uh, publisher on the East Coast. Um, publishing a book, you know, everybody thinks it's it's easy. That, you know, there's a lot of money in it. Um, I don't seek out these publishers. On occasion, that you know, they'll just kind of cold call me and say, like, hey, we're interested in something in the world of sport humanities, and we've identified some of your previous books, um, and are you interested? So, you know, some some of those have have come to fruition. Some of them haven't. Um, th- this book that came out in 2016, um, it's okay. <laughs> it doesn't suck. There's a <laughs> lot to it, uh, but you know, most of my books are not mainstream books. You know, you you have to kind of be interested in in sport from a different perspective to appreciate, you know, what I've been doing in publishing. A so. project like this, though, a book that you just, is this the most recent published? It is, it, yeah. Right. So a, a book like this, from from the day you get a call, somebody yeah. says, hey, we're looking for this type of content. Is that what happened with this book? Yeah. Somebody makes a call, yeah. and by the time you're done writing and it's time to go publish, yeah. what's the time on start to finish? It's two years. Most books are two years. Well, I take that back. I don't know most books. I mean, you know, um, actually, I actually have a novel that that's pretty close to being published. That's been seventeen years in the works, and I'm pretty excited about that. It's fiction, <laughs> but it's seventeen years, and it's you know, it's the novel under the bed that every writer has. You know, that's that usually never gets published, and it kind of props up the door in the back bedroom because the hinges are busted. So I have one of those that uh, I sort of exhumed from propping up the back bedroom door that with busted hinges. What's and, it about? Uh, it's about a Vietnam vet. Oh. So that's all I can say. <laughs> I, I wondered if it had anything to do with you know your <laughs> your life as a triathlete. So so in a book like this, just just you got me really curious. How endurance sports explain the world? Now there's a hundred and two hundred pages here for me to get into. Yeah. How endurance sports 
explains the world. But for somebody who's just tuning in that is going to think about this book, what, what do you mean by that? Well, so, so what, I've been, what I've tried to do is to take my experience and my connections to sport on a variety of levels since the you know, time I started you know, running as an eight-year-old and, and somehow connect personal experiences, theories, research, everything that I've done and, and come up with a handful of different chapters that would connect with the average reader. So, so what is it about being 40 years old and, and not being able to perform like you, like you thought you were, it was, you know, you're going to do? Well, you know, what is it like to be um, you know, a 60-year-old female and expect that sports are going to you know, make you more beautiful and desirable to a mate or whatever? So, so what, I've, what I've done is just in this book is, is look at the world of endurance sports and trying to tease out the, the, the key issues from my perspective that, that help inform, you know, what it's like to be an athlete in, you know, a post-millennial society. And I don't know what that means. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it sounded really good. I was concentrating <laughs> on that. I'm like, wow, that sounds really smart, but I'm not sure what it means. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we, we look at a lot of different aspects of, of sport and society and, 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 Again, using endurance sports as as a vehicle to get to some of those those answers. You know, I mean, you you talked about your own Ironman experience and and it being inspirational, and I could say like, dude, you were like, you know, you barely finished and you got in for free. What the, you know? That's true. But 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 I could say, you know what? Good for you, because the fact that you think about that more so than you think about being on the chess club in high school, more so than you think about you know changing the oil in your Toyota tomorrow. You know, as something that that motivates you and drives you, it's something about endurance sports that you know is foundational to your experience, and that's transcended to a lot of people. No, there's no doubt in my mind, a hundred percent. Let me tell you something. So, I kind of had this thought when I did Ironman that when I cross the finish line, I will have proven to myself again that when I set my mind to do something. I can do it. I mean, it sounds simple, yeah. but it's not because when it came to doing the Ironman for me, number one, um, there were a lot of things that were barriers for me. I'll tell, I'm being completely honest with you here. Um, and I remember you and I talking about this back then where you said to me, look, you're, you're training with a group of guys who are, you know, specifically in a different financial stratosphere. And they had access to all the coaching, all the nutrition, all the best equipment, et cetera, et cetera. I was, I was putting this thing together really piece by piece. I was kissing anybody's ass that I could that could help me get a pair of sunglasses or a pair of sneakers to run in or a bike, bike equipment to use. I mean, it was not, it was, you know, triathlon can be a rich man's sport, yeah. especially now when it comes to the I mean, amount of money that people spend, not just on equipment, but on travel and entry fees into races and so on. I was literally putting this together piece by piece right. and, and had no, so, so the journey of Ironman wasn't just January, the day I started training and October, the day I crossed the finish line, there were a million things that happened along the way from how am I going to get into the race? How am I going to afford all the equipment? What happens when I get hurt and I can't train for a while? It, it's what happens when I have to work and it interferes with my training. I mean, all these, Oh, by the way, how am I going to ultimately get into this race, which, you know, took a long time to finally do. And what if the G4 doesn't have enough, have enough jet fuel to get over? 
I, I wish that was my G4 to fly <laughs> over there. But the, the thing I'm trying to say to you is, is that um, that was such a life-changing experience. Hmm? And I thought to myself back then, if I put my mind to something, I can do anything I want to do. Mm-hmm. And um, and yet, being totally honest with you, now you're gonna you're on my couch, so you're gonna have to play therapist. The things I've wanted to do, um, the things I've wanted to accomplish, haven't quite done them yet. And have this year in particular, in 2018, have really really focused. Um, what it is I'm trying to do and what's really interesting about doing that I find just exactly what you're talking about in this book this I got from Ironman I got this from from endurance sports if I focus on it every day and I work on it every day guess what shit starts happening you mean like luck is where preparation meets opportunity I do mean like that (laughs) yes but but I guess what I'm saying is is that when I believed in 2010, once I cross this finish line, I can do anything. And then as I look back in the last eight years, and I said, but I wanted to do this and I haven't done this yet. Now I feel more focused than ever. But what I'm saying yeah. is, is that as I'm putting in the time and the effort, I'm finding progress. No different than when I was training. My swimming got better. My running got better. My cycling got better as I did more of it, as I put more time, effort, and energy into it. Yeah. And that's what I'm finding now. And that, that to me is how to explain sports, how, to, how endurance sports explains the world. I mean, that, well, that's okay. for me. That's my experience. But think about how easy life has, has become for us physically. Like, you know, we don't have to hunt, hunt and peck for our food. We don't even have to go to the grocery store. You know what I mean? Like three, three clicks on your, on your phone and Vons.com delivers. But you know, the human species genetically desires a kind of um, search. And, and where are we going to find that you know, today in society, legally, safely, you know, without getting thrown in jail, without you know, putting ourselves in undue risk? But something like the Ironman, something like you know, doing 5K, 10K marathon, whatever it is, you know, th- that physical challenge exist as a kind of beacon of hope of light that if if we can do that then that not only defines us but it encourages us to to keep redefining ourselves and that's part of the challenge right and this is why you know we're interested in life transition because you know we we you, you accomplished something eight years ago and and you're okay with it or you were then but but you weren't elected president of the United States two years later because you finished the Ironman, right? You're not president of, you know, local media company. And you think, wow, okay, did I get my, my, my hopes up too high because I accomplished something that not many people can do? Or can I reframe that to say, I learned a lot about myself. Now let me be more realistic about the specifics that came to me during that period and refocus those, right? In a kind of clear, cogent, quiet rational manner and just chip away so that you know I'm, I'm closer and closer to my goal as opposed to just you know waiting for the lottery to end up on my door does that make sense or am i am i full of shit no you got everything <laughs> i was saying you got everything that i was trying to say that that doing the iron man and and doing what i'm doing now particularly in business yeah 
um, Iron Man gave me the confidence and the belief that I could. It also reinforced what I already knew, which is if I focus on it, it will happen. If I plant the seed, it will manifest. Mm. And so I knew that, but Iron Man reinforced it for me. And here I am eight years later, finally essentially getting to what I was trying to get to when I did that. When I, when I knew that I could do what I wanted to do, then the next thing was, I want to do this. And I haven't really done this yet. And yeah. I'm finally in 2018 focusing on it. But what I'm saying is, is I, I get the focus and the motivation and the inspiration and, and, and the activation and all these other shuns. I, I feel like I still get it. It's, it's what I learned in Iron yeah. Man. But you have to remember that, the, I mean, Iron Man's at its root, right? It's a brand, you know, that's owned by Marvel Comics, that's sub-licensed by a Chinese multinational corporation for profit, for profit, for profit, that's worth a billion dollars. It's just an event, right? And anybody can take an event and make it an Iron Man in their own mind. You don't need to go to Kona and do that whole thing to get it. Now, does it help? Because there's publicity and there's history and there's the limelight and there's and there's all this sort of external valuation of you having completed, you know, one of the most challenging endurance events in the world. Absolutely. But but in theory, you know, you, know, you should be able to go out in the woods and, and create that challenge by yourself and do it and come back as inspired, as motivated, as enlightened, you know, as winning an Ironman. But shit, it's pretty hard. I mean, I wasn't able to do it, but... I, I'm I'm working on it. <laughs> well, so. <laughs> I said this to you earlier, Scott. This is one of many times that we'll visit and we'll do this. One more All time, right. I just want to tell everybody that it's it's on the 21st. It's on March 21st. You can Google Life After Sports Concepts and Context in Athlete Transition. It's at the San Diego State Symposium Series Sports in America Society. Scott Tinley and a group of uh, superstars like Paula Newby Frazier and others will be there from 6 to 8 p.m. And uh, if you're interested in this area of study of, of life after your sports career. Uh, this should be a really great thing for people to enjoy. Right. Now you haven't made any comment before you go about my mic flags. It's fantastic. For the Scott Kaplan solo podcast. Yeah. You like this? Yeah, it's fantastic. Oh, yeah. I, was I, I want to, I want a key phobe like that. So they just dangle from my, you know, my, my dashboard. So every time I start my car, I see a picture of you. I was worried that you were going to like protest and not want to hold the microphone. No, no. It's, because it's, are you kidding me? I'm holding it even closer. <laughs> <laughs> Always good to see you, Scotty. Buddy. It is a pleasure to be with All you. Right. Thank you so yep. much. Best of luck with you. All right. And, and thanks for the, for the pitch. Oh my God. It's see great. you guys out and there. I can't wait yeah. to read this book. All right. Take care.